Please, people of God, turn your Bibles this morning again to 2 Kings chapter 6. We are picking up where we left off last time in chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 8 and read through verse 23. Using the Pew Bibles, 2 Kings 6 is on page 395. Spirit of Christ, we know, has been giving us windows into the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. We've, we've seen pots of stew purified, we've seen lepers cured, and we've seen axe heads float. But this morning, the Spirit gives us a window into the unseen. The Spirit gives us a window into the reality that God is surrounding His people. So let's give our careful and undivided attention to the reading and preaching of the Word of our God, 2 Kings 6, at verse 8. Now once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? But Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Now, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Elisha answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the greatest mistakes that we make in this life is to underestimate the power of Satan and his forces. That's what we do every time. We, we approach the line of sin with a view to, to crossing over it. We, we underestimate the power of Satan and his forces. We forget that, that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This, no doubt, is one of the greatest mistakes that we make in the Christian life. But the converse is equally true. Not only is it a great mistake to, to underestimate the power of Satan and his forces, but it, but it is an equally great mistake to overestimate the power of Satan and his forces. And that's what we see here in our passage this morning. When we underestimate his power, we easily fall prey to Satan's temptations. But when we, when we overestimate his power, our knees buckle in fear so that we think, What's the use in even trying to resist? Satan tem- Satan's temptations are, are so strong, and there's, and there's nothing I can do. But here in 2 Kings 6, the Lord is reasoning with us. He is reasoning with us so that if we're living in fear and despair in light of the spiritual warfare that's going on behind the scenes, God would have us to recognize that, that He is on our side. God is on our side to protect us, to keep us safe. To be sure, Satan is, is strong. He is a strong foe. He, he threatens to undo us. That's true. But as Martin Luther has taught us to sing, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus tells us in Luke 10 that he saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. And immediately after his victory over Satan in the wilderness, Mark tells us that Jesus has has bound the strong man that is Satan, that Jesus has, has entered his house and plundered his goods. When the Apostle Paul reflects on the victory of Christ at the cross, he says in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus has has disarmed the rulers. He has disarmed the satanic rulers and authorities, and he has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And if this is all true, we must not only be careful that we not underestimate the power of Satan, but we must also be careful that we not overestimate his power either. As John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. As the Apostle Paul says, if if God is for us, who can be against us? Indeed, in Christ, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And this is what the Spirit of the Lord Jesus is pressing home here in 2 Kings 6, when Elisha says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For everything is is not as it seems. Our spiritual enemies, they appear to be so strong, we sometimes feel like like we're outnumbered. But it's not true. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. To quote Psalm 125, those 
who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. For as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. And that's what we discover here. The God of Elisha is the God who surrounds His people. The God of Elisha is the God who, who protects His people and keeps them safe from the threatening power of their enemies. As we sang from Psalm 91, who with God most high finds shelter lives in God Almighty's shade. And so we can say to Him, you are my God and my fortress where all my trust is stayed. The story, of course, begins with the king of Syria warring against the people of Israel. We see that he is warring against the people of Israel unsuccessfully. At every turn, the the king of Israel is warned by the prophet Elisha beforehand, rendering all the king of Syria's plans useless. And and the king of Syria is is enraged by this. You read in verse 11 that, that the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this. And he imagines that there must be a mole, that there must be a traitor in his midst. For how else could, could the king of Israel always know where the king of Syria's armies are going to be? But then one of his servants steps forward and assures him that it's not that, that there's a traitor in Syria, but that there's a prophet in Israel. And that Elisha, this prophet, he not only knows what the king says in in the war room, but but he knows what the king says even in his bedroom. Now, boys and girls, we of course know that it's not that Elisha has any sort of magical power or anything like that. But Elisha only knows what the Lord reveals to him. It's, it's the Lord who knows what the king of Syria is saying in his war room and in his bedroom. It's, it's the Lord who is the, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-hearing God of the universe. And so it's the Lord who is frustrating the plans and strategies of Israel's enemies. And this congregation is what the Lord is, is always doing. Yes, there are times when we look at the world around us and we wonder if this is really so. We we see so much evil around us, and we sometimes wonder, what, what are the rulers of this world really up to? What are they really up to, we wonder, when they, when they pass sinful legislation in Parliament concerning gender and human sexuality? In the U.S., conservative news anchors will incite fear in their listeners by, by asking, who is really running the country? And while that may be a fair question to ask, we know the answer. Who's really running the country? The Lord is running the country. That's who. The Lord is running that country and every country. And so, and so woe to the church that, that acts like chicken little. Woe to us and we act like the sky is falling. The sky is falling when, we're, when we act like we're all doomed. Don't we know that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and that His ears are open to their cries and that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil? Don't we know the words of Psalm 2? The question is asked in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, they The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's true. That's what the rulers of the world do. 
what does the psalmist say? But he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. In big ways and in small ways, the Lord frustrates and undermines the plans of his enemies. He answers the petition, your, your kingdom come. He, he destroys the devil's work, and he destroys every force and every conspiracy against his word, Lord's Day 48. One pastor tells the story of Christians in China during the 1970s. They constantly had to change their worship locations to avoid the, the harsh crackdowns on Christian worship. And at one meeting, there were five men who had been sent by the authorities in secret to, to make all kinds of arrests at this place of worship. But at the end of the meeting, these men stood up and said, what must we do to be saved? The Lord had disarmed the enemy, and by the power of His Spirit, His enemies had become His friends. Now, we know that God does not always intervene in this way. God does at times, allow His people to endure the attacks and assaults and persecutions of sin and Satan in the world. But even so, no one lays a hand on God's people unless God Himself has allowed it. Satan and his forces are, are on a leash. They're on the Lord's leash. And we know that even if our enemies should appear to get the best of us in this life, we know that God will get the best of them in the next life. And in this way, the words of, of Psalm 124 still stand. We can, we can sing those words. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been on our side, our enemies would have swallowed us up alive. But blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped, for our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Naturally, the king of Syria wanted to know where this troublesome prophet Elisha was, for he knew that, that if he could just seize Elisha, then he could seize the people of Israel as well. And so once again, we're reminded that Elisha is is a type or a shadow of the greater prophet to come. For we know that, that Satan's logic was the exact same. Satan thought that if he could just destroy Jesus, then, then he could destroy us too. And so what did he do? As soon as Jesus entered the world, he, he incites King Herod to make a decree to, to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. We're told in Revelation 12 that that just before the woman gave birth to the son who was to be the ruler of the nations, the dragon was, was standing by, ready to devour the child. But, but what happened? Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. Right at the start of his earthly ministry, Satan again sought to gain victory over him by, by tempting him when he was weak and famished. And when he failed at that, Satan stirred up all kinds of, of animosity against Jesus. He incited Judas to betray Jesus. He incited the Pharisees and others to, to crucify Jesus. This is something that we see taking place here as the king of Syria sets his sights on seizing the prophet Elisha. It's but a, a rehearsing, a rehashing of of the oldest conflict known to man, the seed of the serpent rising up to, to attack the seed of the woman. 
You see, boys and girls, all of human history is about the unraveling of this great conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. But, but God in His grace has given us stories like this one to remind us about how this conflict is ultimately going to end. It's going to end with the God of peace placing Satan under your feet, as Romans 16.20 says. It ends with the words of Psalm 91 coming to pass. You shall trample serpents under your feet, crushing the heads of your foes. And the king of Syria said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. For he knew that if he could just seize the prophet, then he could seize the prophet's people as well. And so it was reported to him that Elisha was in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And how ironic, how foolhardy this is to, to try to surround and capture this prophet who, who knows everything the king says. What does the king of Syria really think is, is going to happen here? But boys and girls, the king of Syria is a fool. Rather than saying, where is the prophet that I might capture him? He, he should be saying, who is the God of this prophet that I might worship him? For whoever he is, he is unlike any God I've ever known. Here's a God who actually sees, who actually hears, who, who actually speaks. But the king of Syria, like Satan and all his and all God's spiritual enemies, is a fool. He is hard-hearted. With each failed attempt, the God of heaven was seeking to, to reason with the king of Syria, saying, How's this working out for you, O king of Syria? Don't you see that that all your attempts to, to kill my anointed will only be frustrated in the end? God reasons with the world in the same way. As people's personal plans for glory and grandeur are, are frustrated, the Lord is bidding them to, to humble themselves before Him. The Lord resists the proud, but He exalts the humble. With every failed attempt of the world, God is saying, don't you see that it's a fool's errand? In the wake of the Lord's laughing, the psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and, re and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is how God reasons with the world. Kiss the son. Blessed are those who find refuge in him. But the king of Syria is hard of heart. He is a fool. And so he surrounds the city of Dothan where Elisha was. And this plan, like all Satan's plans, is going to be frustrated by the Lord. May God open our eyes to see that this is always so. May God open our eyes to see that because this is so, that because... He is frustrating the plans of our enemies. We have no reason to be afraid. 
we have no reason to be afraid. When we, when we turn on the, the evening news and we hear about this legislation or that legislation, we don't need to worry. When we feel surrounded by the enemy on every side, we don't need to be afraid because if God is for us, then no one who stands against us stands a chance at gaining victory over us. But Elisha's servant, we see, did not at first believe that to be so. For when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant cried out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? We can all relate to this servant, can't we? Because it's often true of us that our fears prevail when we forget things. We forget that things are not always as they appear to be. To quote one pastor, we only see on a physical plane, but there is a spiritual world in which God is working at precisely the same moment. And it is actually what is happening in the spiritual world that is determining the course of human history. But Elisha's servant forgot that. And so what did Elisha say to him? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And this is what we need to remember when we fear and despair, as Elisha's servant did so long ago. When we feel surrounded by the enemy, when Satan is is parading temptations before our eyes, and when those temptations are strong, Temptations to lust, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to be angry, to covet, and so on. When we feel as though the enemy has us surrounded, we need to remember that there is always a, a way of escape. Isn't that what Paul says to the, to the struggling believer in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When we cry out in those moments of temptation, despair, alas, Lord Jesus, what shall I do? We need to have these words written on our hearts. Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Greater is he who is in you, says John, than he who is in the world. course, it's one thing to hear that, but it's a whole other thing to see that. And so, for his servant's benefit and for our benefit as well as Christian readers, Elisha prayed to the Lord in verse 17 saying, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And then boys and girls, what happened? As James says, the prayers of a righteous man avail much. And so when Elisha, the man of God, prayed to God, God heard Elisha. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Throughout the Bible, especially throughout Exodus, fire symbolizes the Lord's presence, whether it was at the, the burning bush or in that a pillar of fire by night, fire signifies the Lord is near, that He is really with His people. And that's the function of the fire here in 2 Kings 6. Just as the Lord's chariots of fire 
surrounded Elijah before taking him up into heaven. So too here the Lord's chariots and horses of fire now surround his unafraid servants. It was good for the servant of Elisha to hear this truth, that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But it was even more consoling for him to be held by this truth. And that's what happened when, when he saw the chariots and horses of fire. Beloved, I wish we could see those chariots and horses of fire today as they saw them so long ago. But this morning the Lord bids us to, to see by faith. He bids us to, to trust in His Word, to be held by the truth of His Word that assures us that God surrounds us too. Those who trust in the Lord really are like Mount Zion, <clears throat> which endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. As David says in Psalm 32, verse 7, the Lord has been our hiding place. He preserves us from trouble, and He surrounds us with songs of deliverance. As David says in Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord surrounds those who fear, that, who fear Him, and He rescues them. As He says in Psalm 139, verse 5, the Lord hems us in behind and before. He surrounds us, and He lays His hand upon us. Pictures of the Lord surrounding His people are numerous. The picture connotes both the, the tenderness on the one hand as well as the militant protection on the other. On the one hand, the picture of God surrounding His people can make us think of a father or a mother wrapping their arms around their children. And on the other hand, it can also speak to this army of chariots and horses of fire. But the point is the same. God's people are safe. God's people are secure. God's people, therefore, have no reason to be afraid. You may not see the chariots and horses of fire, but that doesn't mean they aren't there. The Lord surrounds you today as surely as He surrounded the prophet Elisha and his people so long ago, and the Lord defends you. Nothing touches your life without his sovereign permission, says one pastor. No sorrow, no sickness, no temptation. Nothing penetrates the divine fortress unless God so wills it. And when he does allow for that to happen, he never does so without it being for our good. How encouraging it must have been for God's people to, to remind themselves of this story in the midst of their exile. You'll recall that, that the books of kings are being written during the time of of Judah's exile in Babylon. And so for that repentant remnant, cut off from the land of Israel, living under the, the reign of a pagan superpower, surrounded by Babylonians, what it must have meant for them to be reminded. that Although we're just this tiny little remnant in Babylon, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God didn't show them the chariots and horses of fire either. But that doesn't mean he wasn't surrounding them with his love and care in the city of Babylon as much as he was surrounding Elisha and his servants in the city of Dothan. And how encouraging it ought to be for us as well. As Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you know that, that I could appeal to my Father 
And that if I asked, he would send at once more than 12,000 legions of angels. Isn't that amazing for us to think about that? Had it not been God's will for the Christ to be crucified, he could have sent 72,000 mighty angels. And Judas and the band of soldiers wouldn't have stood a chance. If only God would open our eyes every day to see by faith that the servant of Elisha saw so long ago that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Verse 18, and when the Syrians came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So the Lord struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Again, Elisha prays to God, and aren't we learning here in the story as well as Elisha calls upon God three times, that there we have a, a powerful strategy to face Satan's strategies, to pray to the Lord, that God would, would open our eyes to his power and protection and, and blind the eyes, undo the powers of those who are against us. Once again, God answered his prayer, blinds the enemies, and Elisha said, and this is not the way, this is not the city, follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Once again, God has frustrated the plans of his enemies. Having opened the eyes of Elisha's servant, he now has closed the eyes of Elisha's enemies, and he's given his enemies right into Elisha's hand. But boys and girls, what does Elisha do next? As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And, and what that means for them is that they're doomed to die. They are now, now they're surrounded by Israel. So, and this is what was on the king of Israel's mind. We read in verse 21 that as soon as the king of Israel saw them. He said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? But how unexpected is an Elisha's response? He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master, so he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. The enemies of God received God's unexpected protection. The king of Israel had, had a bloodbath in mind, but Elisha had a banquet in mind. And so the people of Israel feasted with the armies of Syria before sending them peacefully on their way. A picture of the New Testament breaking in, Israel and Gentile eating together. And this, you could say, is how the Lord gets his revenge, by showing his enemies unexpected kindness. Would that all of us would learn from him to do likewise, to show grace and kindness to those who have wronged us, to those who have offended us. 
What a surprising, unexpected twist of events. The Syrians fall into the Lord's hands and the Lord spares them. How unheard of. How unexpected. But hasn't the gospel in many ways taught us to expect the unexpected? How often haven't we thought in our own sin that perhaps God's hammer of judgment is finally going to swing down on us and swing down hard only to hear the Lord say again, I forgive you. I still love you. We know that every one of us deserves God's wrath. We all deserve the hammer of God's judgment. We're reminded of that in the preparatory form for the Lord's Supper. None of us are, are worthy in ourselves to have a seat at the king's table. None of us deserve to, to feast with the king. But he invites us anyways. And he summons us to come, confessing our sin, our need, as he invites us to come in his grace and mercy. Rather than showing us hostility, Christ shows us hospitality. Ours is the God who says, come ye sinners, come ye Syrians, poor and wretched, weak and needy, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. I so love the words of our assurance of pardon because they so profoundly illustrate and highlight how the gospel of grace has taught us to expect the unexpected. That while we were still weak at the right time, Christ didn't come to die for the godly. We would have expected that, but he died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? We'll sing in a few moments, God of salvation is his name. This glorious name we shall proclaim. He is our shield and tower. Yes, God will one day judge the nations and his judgment shall be right. We'll sing about that judgment as well. God will one day crush those who persist in their transgression. But the psalm reminds us that today, is still a day of grace in which God summons even his enemies to behold the wonder of his grace. Praise God and shout his glory forth, O kings and kingdoms of the earth, and joyful song, adore him, God says. Because no one in all the world is so worthy of adoration as he is. Today, God graciously summons the kings of the nations. He graciously summons you and me to Take refuge in him, assuring us that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Indeed, beloved, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. May God be gracious to open our eyes to see that this is so. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we read a passage like this and the ending of a story like this, and we 
we cry out with the prophet Micah, who is a God like you? A God so gracious, a God so kind. Lord, we marvel that you have shown us kindness because we don't deserve your kindness. Like the Syrians long ago who conspired against your anointed, we too deserve to die. We deserve the weighty hammer of your judgment. But you have shown us kindness. Father, we pray that you would teach us to look to heaven and to learn from you to show kindness to our enemies. It's hard for us to do that, Lord. We hold on to grudges. We hold on to hatred that lives in us, Lord. Like the the king of Israel, we want to say, shall we strike them down? Shall we strike them down? And our minds quickly go to bloodbaths rather than banquets. But teach us grace, Lord. And teach us confidence in the midst of our own guilt and sin and despair, remind us again and again that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, many of us face the temptation to underestimate the power of Satan, and we need to be wary of that, but some of us at times overestimate his power as well, and that cripples us. That leads us to despair, and so, Father, we pray you would help us to see that Satan is on your leash, that he has already been defeated in Christ, and that we can say no to his temptations because the Spirit of Christ lives in our hearts. And as we worry about the course of the world and all of our spiritual enemies, as we worry about the rulers of the world, and we feel outnumbered because we are a small remnant, we pray that you would Assure us again and again that it's not true, that we are not outnumbered, but that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We thank you, O God, that you surround us and that you protect us. Open our eyes to see it. This is so. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.